Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. And here is your forecast for Friday, September 8th, and Saturday, September 9th. Friday, mostly in the clouds, trending towards in and out of the clouds late. Chance of rain showers and thunderstorms early, becoming scattered rain showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, high around 60. Southwest winds at 30 to 50 miles per hour with gusts up to 60 miles per hour, decreasing to 25 to 40 miles per hour. Stronger winds are possible with thunderstorm activity. Friday night, mostly in the clear, trending towards mostly in the clouds with a slight chance of rain showers early, low in the 50s. Southwest winds at 30 to 45 miles per hour. Saturday, in the clouds with scattered rain, showers early becoming rain likely in the afternoon slight chance of afternoon thunderstorms with a high in the mid 50s winds will be southwest at 20 to 35 miles per hour studio in the great state of new hampshire welcome to the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of new hampshire here are your hosts mike and stump Episode 120 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. We got a new studio. We got all kinds of new toys going on there. Oh yeah, yeah, a complete slasher upgrade. We got a new PC, a new uh, audio interface, new microphone sitting here. Well, not the new one, but and uh, new software upgrade, which is freaking me out. I'm so stressed out watching this thing, making sure that we're recording. Yeah, yeah, for the listeners. So Stomp is like <laughs> freaking out because he's. The old software that he used was from, I think he said 2007, so now he's using oh, yeah. like brand new software with the interface, so it's like going from like Windows 95 to 
AI or something. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like going from, say, uh, the moon landing to SpaceX or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's nuts. Well, it's nice to know you have nice, fancy new equipment. I'm on here with my um, my Best Buy microphone, so thanks. <laughs> You sound good, though. That's all that counts. Okay. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Um, all right. Welcome. So welcome to episode 120 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are joined by Moose Mutlow, a senior trainer of Yosemite Search and Rescue. So Moose has almost 40 years of experience in outdoor education, currently works for Nature Bridge in Yosemite National Park as a senior projects director. So he's helping to plan and design the National Environmental Science Center. Um, Moose has traveled all over the world as a trainer, and he's going to share his experiences in swift water rescue, family liaison training, and a variety of other topics. So get ready for a fascinating discussion. Um, all this, plus uh, there's a lawsuit tied to a young man's death on South Baldface. We've got cool things to do this summer. Um, we've got a hike on Mount Washington. We've got a hike on the Watcher. We've got a hike on Mount Lafayette. I think Stomp did another hike somewhere too that we got to talk about. Um, yeah, and then we've got a bunch of local search and rescue news that's been insanely busy. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Okay, let's get started. So Stomp, like all kinds of new stuff going on. So we got the forecast you've already run, and then what else do we got? Oh, just new gear. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit. So this this episode may sound a little rougher than usual, but please forgive us as we work out the kinks. Okay, yeah. And before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to my lovely youngest daughter, Megan. Today was her last first day of school. She's a senior now. She's going to rule the school. So shout out to Megs. Can I tell you? She's a loyal listener. Can I tell you, my, uh, my daughter, Evie, is, has had her first full week of teaching in South Korea. Oh, wow. Yeah, talk about wild. So, just briefly, um, she's 13 hours ahead. So, when we're sleeping, she's teaching. It's wild. Mm -hmm. So, she's getting to know the, the lay of the land. But uh, it's, it's really exciting seeing your kids just blossom and branch out. So, good luck, Meg, and good luck, Ev. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like when they get older, like I miss them so much. Like I got two that are away at school and I miss them. And like, I, you know, they're yeah. always around. The boyfriends are always around. They're all gone now. And it's like, it's it's great to have the time with Megs, but it's just tough getting old. But anyway, Stomp, you want to talk about coffee. So what's your coffee routine here? Yeah, so hey, I've, I'm rolling with the old uh, pumpkin spice now, thank goodness. But um, in the morning, Shame. I've got a Keurig. I, I put in fresh Shame. ground coffee so I don't Shame. really use those prepackaged uh, packets that you put Shame. into your Keurig. And uh, I have something leading up to that. Shame. So what about you? You're a coffee guy, right? I am a coffee guy. Um, when I did that, like when I was l losing weight and um, dieting and all that, I got rid of like any cream or I used to put like vanilla um whatever roasted vanilla cream in there but now i just drink black coffee hot in the morning and then if i get iced coffee it's usually just dunkin donuts i'll get like a milk and one sugar yeah nice sometimes i'll go to a local coffee shop and they recently switched up their method so usually i'll order a, a large black coffee and then get a double shot of espresso and um what they do is they usually just give me an empty cup and then when they they finish the the brewing they'll give me a small cup and pour that into the empty cup but this time they told me, hey, go fill up your cup, and then we'll give you the, the, the espresso. So I was second-guessing how much I had to fill up my cup. I'm thinking, was this a plan so that they save like the amount of coffee that they're 
giving out to the public. It has to be a cost-saving method. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know, Stomp. Something's Everyone fishy. has their own own systems, yeah. So I'll have to go and check it out. You'll have to take me there and buy me coffee. Okay. Sounds so, good. Excellent, yeah. So I got this backpacking trip coming up, so I'll be I'll definitely be bringing coffee. I got my CS coffee order going in there, so which is good. Stomp, a couple of reminders here. Um, there's a couple of fundraisers that people, if we want to get involved in. Um, we had our friend uh, Brittany on to support the Taylor James Steves Summit Challenge. Um, that starts on September 15th, so you can still sign up there. Uh, I'll include that in the show notes, and if you want to get involved in that, that's a fun monthly challenge where you can race other hikers to see how much elevation you can uh, rack up in a 30-day period. And then, Stomp, you put this in here. There's a uh, Jen's Friends uh, Climb Against Cancer fundraiser as well that yep. was sent in by Sarah Hol- Holtby. So do you know anything about this? Uh, no, not really. We were just spreading the word, though. We got a message uh, requesting that we give it a little plug here. So it seemed like a worthy um, endeavor to mention. Uh, but it's at Cranmore okay. Mountain, September 16th. And uh, it looks like a great, great time out. Yep, 26 uh, Climb Against Cancer, so it's been going on for 26 years, so, um, and it is a, uh, you know, great annual event, so mm. we'll uh, include that in our show notes. Hey, you're talking like 300 to 500 hikers, and uh, they're looking to raise, you know, upwards of 50K or more if possible. Oh, actually, no, it's even higher. I was reading the uh, the first paragraph, 125,000 in donations. Now they're talking wow. 800 hikers. Holy moly. Not bad. I, uh, and, the, the, you know, the other thing about Cranmore, too, is pro tip, if you've got to get over to Cranmore now, you can, in um, in North Conway, you can park, you can walk or ride your bike, you can park by the Walmart now, and there's a parking lot behind the Walmart, and you can either ride a bike right to Cranmore, or you can walk to Cranmore. It's a three-mile walk. It's gorgeous. It go, takes you through um, all this nice woods. It's not a straight like walking path, like you know, paved walking path. It like kind of meanders around a little bit, goes by uh, the green hills. So it's a great area. So if you want to get over there, you can just you know bring your bike, take your car over to the parking lot, and you can do a three mile bike ride to get to Cranmore. You can go eat there. You can do whatever activities, and then ride your bike back. Or if you want to walk, me and Mrs. Mike have done that a couple times already. So it's a great area. Excellent. Nice tip. Great. Um, so, Stomp, I wanted to pull this new story in early in the show so we can cover this, but um, this is an interesting story. So, right. back in 2021, there was a um, there was a, a news article that came out about a rescue that happened off a of South Baldface uh, Mountain. So, I believe that the trail that they were on was um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the name of that darn, that darn trail. Look it up as we're talking, but. Um, it's not the South Baldface Trail. It's the the trail that um, it's a something brook um, that goes parallel to it. It's sort of the bypass trail. So, seventeen year old hiker had had a medical issue. There was no follow up on this one, but apparently, um, the young man, his name was Michael Strecker, he died on this hike. So, this happened on September twelfth, twenty twenty one. He had just begun his senior year at Lake Region High School. Um, and he had gone on a day-long hike of Salt Baldface Mountain in the White Mountains. So this is up in Evans Notch off of 113, and um, Strecker succumbed to exertional heat stroke as students and staff descended the mountain in North Chatham, New Hampshire, Uh, and his parents have now... um, 
you know, they have sued the school system. So uh, this was what's called a senior awareness hike and camping trip um, that happened. So the parents have filed a federal lawsuit on Friday against the school district and two specific staff members. So um, in the lawsuit um, in U.S. District Court in Portland alleges that the superintendent and and a humanities teacher who was a chaperone contributed in various ways to their son's pain, suffering, and death on this 11-hour hiking trip. Uh, They claim that the students and staff weren't properly trained, equipped, or otherwise prepared for the overnight trip that had been held annually for about 20 years. It also alleges that um, Strecker's pleas to turn back were ignored, his access to water was restricted, and he was pushed to keep going before he eventually vomited and lost consciousness. So parents are seeking a jury trial for damages on behalf of their son. So terrible story. Um, the, The school system is not... You know, they're not taking any requests for interviews, no comments, but it's got to be devastating for everybody. Yeah, and they're alleging that they restricted his access to water. I mean, all this will come out in court, but if that's true, that's a pretty heavy accusation. Yeah, yeah. And I got, I mean, I can imagine that, you know, you've got a group of kids, you're on, like, that's not an easy hike. So, um, you know, you can imagine if one kid is complaining and everybody else is just sort of, you know, moving along, you got to wonder whether or not they were really, you know, paying attention to him with a with a large group. And that's the, one of the risks with these large groups that I see out here. Like we've seen issues with these school groups in the past. Um, and the trail, by the way, is Slippery Brook. Um, oh, gotcha. I, I don't know why I couldn't remember that. So Slippery Brook okay. is basically like the bypass trail. If you want to go straight to Eastman Mountain, you can take Slippery Brook up and avoid the ledges. Um, I... I don't know where this group was planning to camp out. Obviously, there's the Bald Face Shelter, and then there's a, a big camping area in Spruce Knoll that's pretty close by that is pretty easy to sort of set up a large group of people, but it wouldn't be my choice for a school group of inexperienced hikers. Okay. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with it, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on this. Um, I just wanted to bring it up early stomp in the show just because it's a it's a sad case. And it's an interesting case from the perspective of, you know, we take these news reports and I make the assumption that like the, the news reports are the final sort of, you know, piece of information. But a lot of times, like you don't know what happens afterwards. So it sounds like they they put this in the news, said that, you know, they had a medical incident and then maybe the person was in the hospital for a day or two and then passed away. Awful. That's terrible. Yeah. yeah, it is awful. So we'll keep everyone updated on that, but sad story. And it's just a good reminder that if you are hiking with a group of kids, you know, you really got to have a good volume of chaperones. You got to know what you're doing and you got to keep an eye on everybody. Mm-hmm. So, yep. all right, stop. So moving on, uh, we've got a list of cool things to do here. So you put some of these together and then I think I added a couple as well. So, um, the Wright Museum. Mm-hmm. What's this all about? This is located in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, and it's basically a large museum that focuses in on uh, World War II era uh, photography and actual gear, tanks, you name it. This place has everything related to World War II. It looks really amazing. Um, planes vehicles. I mean, it's amazing. It's a massive facility too. I had no idea that this existed and um, we will provide the link, but it's just really cool. And it's located right here in New Hampshire. 
Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and then we have uh, the White Mountain Oktoberfest is happening on Loon Mountain Yay. on October 7th through October 9th. Yep. I've never gone, but it's beer and it's a mountain, so it sounds cool to me. Well, it's beer and Oompa bands. It's even better. <laughs> yes. So have you been? Uh, no, I haven't. But uh, haven't. yeah, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Looks great. Great. And then next up, we have a Whoopie Pie Festival <laughs> that's happening in Rut- Rut- Rutland, Vermont, which is in on September 16th. So that's coming up. Yeah. The, oh, it sure is. Yeah, that's for sure. So for those of you that uh, like Whoopie Pies, this may be your event. Yeah, this is actually one of two Whoopie Pie festivals that happen in New England. There's another one that goes on in like June or July, I think, in Maine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hmm. So... Bring your. Um, what do you drink with whoopie pies? I always like a I, stout. I, I, drink, I, I don't know. I always drink water, but um, I, people drink milk or something. But you got to drink something with whoopie pies. Of course, pies. I would say dry. stout. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, and then also, this is from September through October. If you're looking for something to do in Lincoln or North Woodstock, uh, the Sandcastles or slash sculpted sand at the ice castles yeah. is running from September through October. Mm-hmm. And um, you can go where that ice castles location is. And for $16, you can go look at sculpted sand, which seems pretty cool. That's great. So they're bringing that event off of the beaches and into the, uh, the North country, basically. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds fun. Cool. Uh, and then a couple of apple picking pumpkin donut corn maze type places that I wanted to give a shout out to. The first is Sherman Farm in Freiburg. So Sherman Farm is open from September 23rd through the end of October. They offer um, a big corn maze, probably the best corn maze I've ever been in. It's giant. And then you can buy pumpkins and I think they have donuts and some other stuff there. So definitely check it out. It's over in Freiburg right by North Conway. And then if you are in Massachusetts on the North Shore, I would recommend Cider Hill Farm for your apple picking. Uh, they got hay rides, they've got pumpkins, they got cider donuts, they got a nice country store, they got animals for the kids to pet. It's a great place. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's another one on the way to Crane Beach in Ipswich. Do you remember the name of that farm? There's another one. Just do a search for it, it'll pop right up, but that's another great option if you're looking for the cider and apple picking and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Anything in Plymouth or um, or your area? Um, I know there's one up towards Benton, New Hampshire, which is you know up over Lost River. You're heading past 116 on the Kank. Uh, it's up in that neck of the woods. I forget the name of it, to be honest with you, but it's a pretty common area for people to go visit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well. Sorry, I don't make remember sure the you name. Get out there, apple picking. Are you ready for Slasher's Ear Review? All right, stop. We got a gear review. Hey, yeah. I finally got the prototype for the Ultralight by Vaucluse. So Vaucluse is our sponsor, and um, I was curious to try the ventilation backpack frame on my Ultralight, and uh, I have done so. I've been running with it on the back. Um, so far, so good. Um, you know, it didn't stop my profuse ability to sweat (laughs) which is never going to change but that being said uh i was definitely much more comfortable the air was just zipping through my back and uh clearly it um 
it works as it's intended to. My only one complaint, and I wouldn't even call it a complaint, is that it took me a little bit to get used to the the sort of sensation of those hexagonal uh, pieces pieces of plastic on my back. So I felt that was a new sensation, but it's not by any means any you know detriment to the the product. But uh, very very good. Two thumbs up by Stomp. Now you did you use your big pack? No no no. I used it on an ultralight. So these are narrower, smaller ventilation frames that actually fit into your, what I'm using is one of those old uh, camelbacks that's been modified. So it was an easy install. You know, you have the two hoops up on the top. It loops over your your, uh, straps. And then down below, there were two Velcro points that attached it firmly. Stays nice and there's no like, you know, laxity or, or jumping up and down as you're moving. Uh, so it stays still once it's installed and uh, does what it's supposed to. So nice work. Yeah, yeah. Super light. Yeah, I've been using. I mean, I've been using it for almost. I don't even know how long now, but basically every hike I've gone on this year, and um, it fits perfectly into the ultimate direction, like the twenty-five liter pack that I have, the fast pack. Um, it, matter of fact, I I don't even take it off. It just stays there. It fits. It fits perfect. So I found like I did the watcher and I did. Um, Lafayette, we'll talk about those hikes later, but like I had no issues with sweat, especially you get above tree line, the wind starts blowing. It's, it really does like dry you off, even if you are building up a little bit of sweat. It's good stuff. Absolutely. So check them out. Vaucluse gear. Um, great stuff. All right. And then, uh, coffee donation stomp. We got anything? Yes, sir. Yeah. We have a donation by Jake skis 603 who donated three coffees. Thank you, Jake. Very appreciated. And then Bobby, OC23, donated 10 coffees. That's a record. And uh, he just says, basically, keep up the good work. So really appreciate it. And um, keep them coming. <laughs> That's all we can say. Keep them coming. Stomp, Stomp <laughs> needs new toys, new audio toys. Yeah, so we right. appreciate it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's all we got. So we have another sponsor here. Speaking of Vaucluse, do you have a sweat problem? Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There is a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Vaucluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, size 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over 3 ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit vaucluseGear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today and use promo code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, to enjoy a $5 discount. Plus, let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. All right, Stomp, this is the part of the show where we talk about what we're drinking. Are you are you drinking any beer tonight? I am. I was I was uh, itching to break into this one. This is a, a Schilling beer, and it is called Bond Cliff. It's the American Ale Project of Schilling Beer Company. It's a double IPA at 8.5% ABV. It's part of their Resilience series, I suppose. It has a beautiful picture of Bond Cliff on it. So right here in Littleton, brewed and packaged. 
What you got? Impressive. Impressive. Yeah. I have uh, beer number two of my cloud candy. So I think last episode um, I had one of these. So, so far, so good. Yeah. This is um, Mighty Squirrel Brewing Company. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Sounds good. All right, Stomp. So, uh, recent hikes, where you been? Well, I've been out DJing while you've been gallivanting around. See, I'm always out there hustling, trying to get new listeners, and I don't know. I guess I got to live with it, huh? Somebody's got to do it. True. <laughs> but hey, listen, I actually got out to uh, Liberty and Flume via the Osseo. Um, I started at 1.30 p.m. on, I think it was last Sunday, Labor Day weekend, and uh, parked my truck on the kank. It was like half a mile out and um, made my way up via the uh, the new Osseo, not the old Osseo. I went past the junction where you can actually dive onto the old Osseo Trail, which goes over to Whaleback. But, um, mm-hmm. dude, I, those those are such great mountains. My favorite part of that little loop is to go up to the summit of Flume, that first little rocky uh, climb that you have to do that breaks out to the view is just so exhilarating. I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so great. And then from there, I just went over to um, Liberty and then down Liberty Springs, stopped at the spring. By the way, this is a funny story. I've I've been sucking on those springs for ages and I've never had a problem with them. So when I got there, I filled up my Nalgene's with the water and I just started chugging liters of that water. And uh, this one person was like, hey, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to, uh, you know, filter that? I'm like, nope, <laughs> nope, it's absolutely fine. So yeah, no problems at all. 24 hours later. Was he like, what about that pile of moose poop up, <laughs> upstream there? Well, the, no, that's the thing. It's a spring. So the mountain springs yeah. are literally coming out of the earth. So yeah, I agree. If it's if it's a you're talking about the the spring that comes out of like the campsite, correct? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I drink out of that. No problem. Yeah, no problem at all. So I mean, just just so people know, it's like those mountain springs, whether it be Garfield Tent Site or the Liberty Springs. Just you know, I don't. I'm not going to tell you to do it, but I've not had a problem, nor have you, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it was fun. But anyway, good. Yeah, yeah. Good for for. Yeah, for mo- and most of the time, like when you're at those like campsites or whatever, whatever the spring is, I don't know why, but like, I just magically assume that they're safe. Hmm. Well, I think those um, those filter companies really work on fear. I mean, they've got people filtering everything for God's sakes. Like, yeah, come on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, we'll see how it goes. But all right, so, yeah. so I've been out. Uh, I've been out and about. You're right. I was like, <laughs> I was enjoying my week off from the podcast. So I'm just I did. Um, I did a uh, solo hike on Mount Washington, so uh, it was a bad day. I was questioning myself uh, going uh-huh. up there because I was like, it's not going to be that many. There's not going to be any views. It's going to stink. Uh-huh. But I was like, I really wanted to go up Tuckerman and see what's going on. So originally, I was going to go up Huntington, but I was... You know, it, it was raining as I drove up, and I was like, I'm not doing Huntington because if something happens and I'm on this dumb podcast, I'm going to look like a moron. So <laughs> I, I said, I'll go up Tuckerman and I'll just see what's going on. So I went up Tuckerman. I got um, I got on trail at like 6.30, 7 in the morning, uh, up Tuckerman, and then I was like kind of done, <laughs> and I just said, forget it. I'm cutting over and going up Crawford Path. So I, I kind of hiked around, went up Crawford, and then had my sandwich up at the up at the uh, the summit area there hung out for a little while and then came down Tuckerman and then went over to Lion's Head 
And when I got to Lion's Head, I was still waiting. There was no views the whole day. So I was like, I'm hiking in the clouds. This is dumb, but I'm still out, so I'm happy. Uh, but I, I went to Lion's Head. I waited for about 45 minutes to see if it would clear up, but it didn't. And then just as I'm leaving Lion's Head... Um, it started to clear, so I went to that lower section right below Lions, and I got some good photos of of Tuckerman like clearing out of the, the clouds, which was fun. Oh, that's cool. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I did see Stomp. We I got something for us to do in the future. I did see a couple that was climbing up Lions Head via the slide from the floor of Tuckerman up to Lions Head. So there's a slide, rock slide. Up oh, there sure. That you can climb to the right. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're exactly. in the bowl. So well. Yeah, exactly. So you get like you know where the um, the the SAR cache is yes. there. That little that little you basically go right off of that to the right, and it's just a you know you go to the I think those are the lunch rocks, and then sure. you just head up Lion's Head that way. Right. So I want to do that someday. I never I never knew about that. I mean, you can see it; it's pretty obvious as they were coming up, but I, I've never done yeah, it. Yeah, that'd be so. fun. Yeah, it looks reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, which was cool. Yeah. So I got a new bucket list. And then the following weekend, I pulled together my friend Tom, who I'm going to Yosemite with next week, and uh, my friend Steve, who I met over the winter, and we've been doing a bunch of hiking. He's uh, He's got a great Instagram where he takes pictures of his Italian sub with nice mountain views behind him. So um, we did the Watcher, and then I so I, I basically did the the trip that you showed me, which is up the Watcher yep. via Greenleaf, and then across from the Watcher. You know, we went up on the cliffs above. Mm-hmm. Then we went across Eagle Cliff. We put our names in the book for the bushwhack, and then uh, went back down to Greenleaf and over to uh, Lafayette, and then back down and out via Greenleaf back to the Cannon parking lot. So it was a great day. Oh, that's great. All right, so you found the little cairn that marks the beginning of the bushwhack up? Um, I walked past it. I told the guys to keep an eye on it. I was like, it's about a half a mile in, and I told the guys to keep an eye on it, and I walked past it, but Steve's like, hey, I think this is it. Yeah. So it's a climber's trail. Obvious. And we headed up. Yeah. And, you know, going with three people, it's you go the right side slide at the end, right. and we had to go one at a time. I feel like that slide's gotten a lot looser over the years oh, yeah. compared to when I first did it. But um, one at a time, give plenty of room and so it's a very loose slide it's similar to like salt twin uh, salt uh, tri-pyramid or something so wait like a minute that. So, was this your first time no i've been up oh, there like this okay. is probably my right. fourth or fifth time right. i have a couple other questions for you about this but go ahead sure yeah you went out didn't you go with me one time up the watcher um i can't remember i can't remember i don't think so i can't remember either so, yeah i don't what, know what questions do you have all right so you you decided against the left slide how come? Um, well, <laughs> it's because scary as hell. Uh, yeah, it's scary as hell. <laughs> um, it's sort of worn down, and it's essentially like it's 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 probably like a fifteen foot like rock climb, <laughs> free climb. That's not it's not vertical, but it's right. pretty vertical. So it's like why risk it? And it's it's as brittle as say um, you know the shoot over at uh, Mount Lowell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's sketchy as hell. So you want to go right. And I wouldn't encourage anyone to go up the left side. Yeah. Now, my next question. When you left the watcher, did you find the herd path that just goes over to Eagle? No problem. No problem. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's so yeah. distinct. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No problem going up there. And then last time I was up there, they did not have the uh, the PVC pipe uh, thing on the summit. Right. This time they've replaced it. 
there's a book, so I just I put my name in there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it got blown yeah. down a couple years back. Disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, there was like a um like a a tornado type of thing that went through and blew blew that whole area out. But mm. you know, heard pass no problem, and then reconnecting to Greenleaf. And, and I'll tell you, like me, Steve, and Tom, we were by ourselves the entire time. We were on the Watcher, Eagle Cliff, Greenleaf. We get to the hut, and it was like uh, Grand Central Station. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. It's the time of year. Yeah, so, yeah, and it is, you know, when we can, so we went up to Lafayette, there's probably 50, 60 people up there. It's everyone's having a good time taking pictures. I told, you know, I, I'll talk about this in the segment with Moose, but we saw a guy that was yelling at his dog, which is not cool. But overall, yeah, it was like super crowded. And then once we went back down Greenleaf, we didn't see a single person. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Skookum Chuck and Greenleaf, those are the ways to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And did you find the felon camp? I did, yeah. So Stomps is talking about. I sent him a picture. Like when you're coming down Eagle Cliff, there's like a um, there's a weird like little camp that's abandoned that has like a um, it's got chicken wire in there. So I think the person was putting chicken wire around. It's got tarps and it's got um, like a a beach chair. Yeah, right. So yeah, I feel like there was like maybe a hermit or something that was trying to set up a camp there. That's been there for years. Last time I went up was maybe three years ago. In- that's when uh, Nick and I found it. And uh, yeah, you yeah. can only imagine who's... Tr- I mean, the the. so you're saying the chicken wire. I wonder if that was for bear protection maybe or something like that? That's what I'm thinking. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's two. There's actually two caches of chicken wire up there. One that's up on the cliff and then <laughs> one that's down below in that camp area there. So I don't know what they were setting up. Huh, interesting. Did you get creeped out or were you like, oh, this is old? I was a little creeped out. That was that was a little weird. Well, yeah. But, um, that's can you imagine walking on a onto like a, a twenty foot tall teepee in the middle of nowhere? I mean, that's why it's freaky when you're bushwhacking. All of a sudden, you come onto some sign of civilization. It freaks you out. Like, who the hell is living here? It is different, and it's like you know the thing about bushwhacking too. And again, I was dealing with mostly a herd path, but sure, like sure. just reconnecting with the main trail, you just are constantly questioning yourself because you're like, all right, I know I need to go in this direction, but it's pushing me to the left, and I need to go right. And mm-hmm. am I going to be okay going twenty, fifty feet to the left when I know I need to go to the right and hope that it's going to turn back for me? <laughs> yeah, you second guess yourself. Did you have satellite yeah. communication on any map service or anything? I had my Gaia app on my phone oh, so I could reference that. There you go. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So it was all good. I was proud of myself, Stone. No, you would have been proud yeah, of I me. bet. I'm ready for the captain. No, dude, that's a that's a challenging hike. The ascent to watcher and then the herd path. You have to be aware of what you're doing. It's not laid out for you, plain and you know, black and white. Yeah, yeah. You know what the funny thing about that hike was like I think me, Tom and Steve, we sort of all agreed like after climbing the watcher and then getting up on that like summit above the watcher mm-hmm. and the views, like we were pretty much all set. Like we would have been like, Okay, we've only been hiking for forty five minutes, but like the views and everything that we went through, like we were like ready to just finish the day. But we we decided to just stick with it and go up to Lafayette. But mm-hmm. I think the Watcher was by far the highlight. Lafayette was like just Jesus. This is like a a crowded mess. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. 
So, all right. But anyway, good times, and I recommend it to anybody. I can put my GPS track up there. Just stay safe. The watcher is no joke. Um, stop notable hikes. What do we got? All right. So you can tag Slasher on, on your adventure to be considered for Slasher's Hike of the Week. And uh, we have a bunch. We're a little constipated this week with uh, notable hikes because of our break. And I'd like to talk to you about this after, Mike, okay? So we have Eric J. 72 went up Musalak via Gorge Brook, and that's the 34, 31st out of 48. E.C. Banks hikes New Hampshire. Uh, Tom Field and Willie on a rainy day, minus Jackson and Pierce. Mr. Conley hikes, Tom Field and Willie again, and Avalon for 10 to 12 out of 48. Then we have Amy Frechette, Mount Crosby, and Bald Knob. Nice job, Amy. That's such a great loop, and we just talked about that recently on those you know, hikes that you should definitely check out. Um, Dr. Nancy Q, 100-mile tour of Mount Blanc, and uh, Bella Pelzar, I apologize. I didn't write down what you did, so bad on me. But uh, whatever you did, I'm sure it was awesome. <laughs> John Hudak, Garfield to Bond and all peaks in between. And then our, our favorite little one here, Littlefoot, completed the summer 48 on Ajakachok. That's Mount Washington. So congratulations, Littlefoot. Liz Fay, this is a recent bush, bushwhack that I talked about. Parking Lot Peak, that's the trailhead of Mount Carrigane. And that's a pretty modest little bushwhack, but it's good. It's a, it's a great start for bushwhacking. And um, then she camped at Carrigane Notch and Desolation Trail, and then went up to Carrigane and uh, visited the ghost town of Livermore. Jake Ski 603, Mount Roberts for 3 out of 52. And then Dave Shits in the Woods went to Dixville and Smarts Mountain. Rhonda Willett, 68, did the Franconia Ridge clockwise. Uh, Liz Fay again did, uh, oh, this is a fun one. Mike, have you done Whitewall yet? No, no, okay. I haven't. Speaking of loose slides, right? Oh, hell yeah, yeah. It's really active. Um, the, the claim to fame I have on this, the street cred, as they say, is that I did this at <laughs> night with Jimmy Chaga. Um, Crazy. But yeah, she went up Whitewall and then down the Birch Glades, and that's a nice feature on this one. So you make your way up to the summit of Whitewall, and then you can uh, traverse your way back to the Zealand Trail towards the hut via this beautiful Birch Glade. So it's really nice. Jennifer Collins, 5768, did 41 out of 52 with a view, and that was North and South Percy. Always a great one. 24 out of 48 for Just Benz on Jefferson with the Dad Venture crew. Uh, and then Ma Patate, I hope I say that right, finished the 48 out of 48 on Mount Carrigan. Congratulations. Nick hikes and plays guitar, Square Ledge and Mount Pogus. That friggin' hiker did take, oh dude, these pictures are great. Nice job, uh, friggin' hiker. Table Rock and Percy Peaks. So I, I, you know, honestly, I've never been to Table Rock and his pictures actually gave it me a new understanding of how intense that is. Uh, I know you've been there, right? Yeah, yeah, that is a uh, that is a, a scary you know climb out to the edge of that that thing. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I can't wait to go. It's so crazy. Uh, yeah, we got to go up there. Yeah, for sure, no doubt. We'll do it on uh, when it's winter and we have to put micro spikes on. How's that sound? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll pass. <laughs> All right, just a couple more here. So Rhonda Willett, sixty-eight Owlshead, uh, and that's her forty-first for summer. 
Uh, Chris Rafferty did the 52, completed the 52 with a view on stairs, mountain for a backpack. Cindy Chess, nice job. I read this in depth here. So you you went to North Twin making 29 out of 48, and you had some uh, heat issues, and I can't blame you. It was a tough, hot weekend when you were out there, but congratulations on uh, doing that. Um, you, you played that well. And uh, finally, Kimmy Fit 71, Haystack Mountain and Devil's Slide. So that's a lot. Uh, I know we generally try to cover them all. And um, I just did put a poll up on the Slasher Instagram to find out if people were finding value in this segment. And the poll was 98 to 2, essentially, pro the segment. And then I got thinking, um, I think there's ways to make it better. And I was wondering what you thought about this, Mike. Um, perhaps limiting the number that we talk about per episode. So say like 10, we'll pick 10 and we just subjectively pick them ourselves and uh, talk about them. But that would give us more time to expound upon these. And what we'll do is we'll probably pick the best of the best for that 10. And that might incentivize listeners to actually get out and go a little bit further and beyond and pick some really cool hikes that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that sounds good. I think the other thing that we probably want to think about, Snop, is some of these folks that frequently send in their notable hikes, having them on for a segment or two to talk about like their, you know, their hiking journey. So um, I idea. think that we could probably do a whole show about that. Yeah, are you talking like um, one at a time or like a whole gaggle of them? <laughs> I don't know, Stomp. I'm just talking we'll, right now. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I don't know the logistics. We could figure it out, but we definitely got to get some folks on. Awesome. Well, that sounds good. So I think we should try that. And uh, again, just get out there and do some really cool, inspiring stuff that may not be familiar to us, even as the hosts uh, and other listeners. And uh, we'll carry on. Yep, and I want to give a shout out to the guy that finished the 52 with a view on Mount Stairs. I don't know the name. I, I missed that, but mm. um, good for you. That's my favorite uh, favorite list. Yeah. Yeah. Visually, that's a stunning area. Oh, love it. Stairs is awesome. So cool. Anyway. Yep. Uh, all right. All right, Stomp. So we are getting into our segment of the week. So we're going to talk with. Um, our friend um, here, Moose uh, Mutlow, who is a, a senior trainer on the Yosemite Search and Rescue. So he's going to talk about um, Swiftwater Rescue. He's going to talk about his journey in in his uh, sort of outdoor career. He's got a lot of really good uh, takes and perspectives on search and rescue. He's got some good advice around uh, places to check out related to national parks. And just an overall uh, super interesting guy. So let's go into uh, the segment here and then we'll come out and uh, finish up with recent search and rescue news. All right, let's do it. (laughs) You beat me to it. For Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool. Welcome, Moose, to the um, Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. You've really made the big time now. Congratulations. Well, I'm glad. I'm really glad to be part of it. 
I've, I've actually watched your show from afar. It's kind of fun to be on it. So thank you. Excellent. Um, so why don't you start off and give a little bit of background, introduce yourself um, to the listeners, talk a little bit about your early life and travel and, and you know, how you came to uh, where you're currently, you are in your career. So I currently work in Yosemite National Park for a environmental education program called Nature Bridge that gives environmental education programs throughout the national parks in the United States. And I ended up here through guiding. For a long time, I worked for Outward Bound uh, in the United States and around the world. And I have a background in formal and non-traditional outdoor education. And I grew up in England. At 18, 19, started traveling, ended up in Southern Africa, got a bit of a taste for wild spaces full of dangerous animals, and that drove me for the next probably 15 years to seek opportunities to be in wild, empty spaces. And then that, that with being in the United States, ultimately working in national parks, for a nonprofit, you also get exposed to other opportunities to work in and around other areas of the National Park, and I ended up working specifically in search and rescue. And if you were to, we get we get a lot of young listeners, and uh, I always ask this to people that have sort of carved out a career in the outdoor industry. Um, can you give your thoughts or sort of your advice to young people that are listening um, around, you know, what you would do, how you would approach going about like finding a career in, in the outdoor industry? Uh, which a lot about, unfortunately, sacrifice. <laughs> There's not a lot of security in it, um, and, and you've got you've got to c- put commit. You've got to put yourself into it and accept opportunities that maybe aren't the mo- most financially rewarding or have a degree of risk to get these sort of exotic experiences. And that's the reality of the business. I think we can we can look for living wage, which is really justifiable and to figure out ways to reward people for their competence and their professionalism. But it it's about ri- what we do is about risk for the most part, and it's a risky thing to be into and to do it young. It's my movement into more of a management setting and a more secure background happened when I was 35, and my knees couldn't take being in the outdoors in the same way. Right, they and I would did imagine when I was 20, those... Oh, no, go ahead. And 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 I think the big part of it. Is, sorry, the big part of it for me is it's got to be fun. It's you've got to go into it with the attitude that the reason you're doing it, doing it is to have a good time. And if you become embittered and a bit angry, it's probably time to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And. I would imagine that in your 20s, like if you're working a variety of different projects and in 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 jobs, even though you're not getting paid a lot, I'm assuming that you're building a pretty solid network that over time, that network eventually sort of pays off and you can work your way into a, a better financial situation. Yeah, it's about diversity. If you spend the enti- your entire career just tuning skis in the winter and then being a raft guide in the summer, you've got a very narrow set of skills. You've got some really good interpersonal skills that are, that are hard to document, but that's a narrow career base to build from apart from becoming a ski tuning manager or a raft manager. 
And so I think early on to have diversity of experience is critical. And to make professional development uh, a key part of that is not just, just accept doing the same thing over and over again, to work for other companies, to work with different populations. That's, that's the key in all of it. In your early times, while you were doing the outward bound um, activities, did you find that the the clients and the young people that were involved in outward bound were they generally getting a lot from it, or was there a mix of people that were there just sort of forced to be there by their parents or for other circumstances? I'm always curious about outward bound and and that sort of whole industry of getting young people out for extended trips over the summer. I think the longer the trip is, the more impact you're going to have. If you're, I did a lot of three-week programs, and I think for, for teenagers, three weeks is, is essentially enough time to break habits and start new habits, potentially. And I don't think it fixes everybody. I, th- I think it's, particularly now, I think a lot of kids now have a lot more challenges than, than I had when I was younger, and that the model hasn't changed that much to adapt what the new population needs but the there's there's pretty good review academic review that talks about long-term change of uh not necessarily outward bound but the the effect of wilderness-based programming as giving kids younger people an opportunity to self-assess and gain confidence beyond what their peer group is to build self-confidence and self-reliance is at the heart of a lot of those outdoor skills. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I may be showing my bias a little bit because I'm, I'm older now, but I do feel like earlier generations were more exposed to outdoor activities for a longer period of time, so it wasn't unusual to, you know, be out outside in the woods all day long as you were a kid, and I feel like they're less and less common, and I think young people that get into hiking and outdoor activity in their late teens or in their 20s you know, maybe they're not as acclimated to, you know, the, the the challenges that are involved. And we see that when we look at the the search and rescue numbers, um, at least in New Hampshire that I've collected, is that I think over half the rescues are people that are younger than, or 29 or younger, and there's a fair amount of, you know, teenagers and early 20 people that get in trouble out there. So can you talk a little bit about just general education in, the, in that age group? Well, yeah. I, I didn't. I reflect that back as well a little bit. It's like when you were out as a young person, were you just going out on your own, or were you part of a club, or did you have mentors? Can you remember? Well, I think most of the time it was neighborhood kids, and we were out because our parents didn't. You know, we we didn't have an option. Like we were out of the house, and we were told to basically go outside and come back for dinner time. But I also had overnight summer camps where I was exposed to. Um, you know, a lot of outdoor activities with the, you know, I went to a, a religious summer camp and the, 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 the guides there would take us out all day on different, you know, trips and we'd do sporting activities and things like that. So it was a mix of, of just sort of self-play and then, you know, getting some mentorship. So this is part of like young people who are less, uh, they handle risk differently for some of the population. But there's also a lack of mentorship in that you went to a summer camp. A lot of kids don't have the opportunity to summer camp mentorship. The idea of Cub Scout or Scout programming or youth programming or knowing somebody who climbs and serving an apprenticeship with that person 
those have declined. If you look at the way in which people have developed over the years, what used to happen 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years, you don't have the same contact. And while you might have it at college, not everybody's going to college and being able to do an outdoor program. So I think it's easy at times to point the finger out, oh, you're unqualified. You know, you're having an accident. It's actually a reflection of a lack of leadership from people like me who should be mentoring young people into, into getting those skills. So if you look at somewhere like Austria with the Alpine Club, my nephew was in Austria on an educational scholarship, and he was apprenticed to like a 70-year-old female climber who would free solo these routes, these classic routes in the Alps, and he was told to tag along, and he learned through that experience because he had a really experienced person holding his hand. And that's where I think programs like scouting or um, there, there is a, there's a number of other programs that are out there that work with young people to try and mentor have real value. And that I also think we sometimes remember the t misremember the terrible misadventures we had as young people that but for one thing, we would have been on that search and rescue. And it, it, it's. It, in a way, phones, the ability to connect to sort of a loud rescue to happen. Whereas there were situations I was in as a kid where I was like, well, I don't want to call my parents because I'm going to be in trouble. And I self-rescued at that moment. So there, there's, there's, these, there's all of these pieces that come together to kind of create the landscape where we're at now. And the thing we shouldn't be doing, I believe, is when we see these statistics, it's just saying it's the ki it's the kids, it's young people. It isn't. There's there's this bigger force at play. Yeah, no, that's a great insight, and it's you know it, it makes sense. And I do think that there is an an aspect of like you said, like the newer technology allows for people, rightly so, in a lot of cases. Like you don't want people self rescuing because sometimes those things can go really badly. So I don't think it's a bad thing that they you know people have access to um, calling for help for sure. Um, I am curious, you know, your background in search and rescue, can you talk a little bit about how you transitioned from so your guide work and your other, um, other jobs in your youth into, um, working in search and rescue? Well, I'm very lucky because I work with Yosemite Search and Rescue, which is a federal search and rescue group where we actually get paid for call outs. It's very unusual within the United States and around the world for you to have rescue professionals that are paid. So most of them are volunteers. So in the United States, probably 95% of participants are volunteers who give up their time. So I, I transitioned into something that actually financially gives me some reward. It's not huge money, but it's been paid for my time out there. And I have very specific skills. I have, I have a really deep background in swift water. And so that's my main training area in the park. So I help coordinate the Swift Water team in Yosemite. I do all the trainings. We offer a Rescue 3, which is one of the international certifications, our certifiers that are out there, trainings in the park for all the rangers and for personnel in and around water. And you essentially go on call. So if you're local, you have a pager, and when the beep goes off, you race on your bicycle to the Sarkash and you find out if you're going to go out on a carryout or there's a, a more technical involved response. And I, I don't do that anymore, that level of response. I, I operate on a much more, a higher level 
with training and then specifically family liaison work. In Yosemite, around the um, the waterways, what sort of messaging and techniques do you use for preventative measures? I'm assuming there's a lot of signage and a lot of trail steward type activity that goes on to sort of warn people. I would imagine too, like seasons like this year, where you've got a lot of high water late in the year, are probably you know more difficult as far as search and rescue goes but can you talk a little bit about the preventative work that goes on in yosemite we try to do a bit of a dump on national media and local media on whether on what's happening with the water this year we did i did a lot of work online with uh pacific crest trail of organizations to talk about what 250 percent snowpack actually means in conditions and the fact that there's a lot of objective hazards out there. And then we have some messaging out on trails, some messaging online that talks about water impact. We, we take social media uh, film and put that online to show the speed the water moves at when we're doing training, which is a bit of an eye-opener to people. But most people arriving, they're so blown away by the landscape, they aren't really reading anything. And... It's, it's one of those things where 99.9% of the people are fine. They kind of get close without knowing how dangerous it is. And it's that tiny percentage you, pretend, you, you probably couldn't reach. You have the accident. And it might be something as simple as touching the water to see how cold it is and simply slipping into a snowmelt river and you're pretty much dead within the first 15 seconds to swimming in places that aren't great, like above a 400, 500-foot waterfall. Through to just being incredibly unlucky, like driving the road right next to the river and having a massive rock come down in the middle of nowhere at night and just destroy your car and kill the people in it. There's, there's this sort of balance between things that you just have absolutely no control over, these things that you just underappreciate what's happening, and then you have this piece that, People call Darwin Awards, which I don't actually like because it's, it, it's disrespectful in that moment to that person and to their family. But the idea that people just don't think through at that moment the consequences of their action and that one or two small things going wrong in a moment add up to a fatal mistake. Yeah, we, we just had an incident here or a, a tragic fatality in New Hampshire where a young child just slipped in and the parents go in after the child to save them. And, you know, unfortunately, the mother didn't survive. And, you know, a, a, a fun day kind of dipping your toes in the river turns into a tragedy. So I definitely understand that. Um, and that's that's not uncommon with, within water is the rescuer is the person who dies and the person being rescued actually makes it out. I had a colleague at work who entered the surf to rescue his dog and the dog got out and my colleague died. And it, it, it's, it's, this is not an uncommon symmetry. Yeah. And I would imagine that the amount of adrenaline pumping through somebody that's diving in to rescue somebody that they really love or a dog that they really love, it probably, you know, they, they burn off all their energy getting that rescue done. And then, unfortunately, if they're not able to get out themselves, then, you know, you burned all your matches. It's, it's a difficult thing. Um, 
But our culture, our culture also has this thing about heroism that you have it on the news. Hero law enforcement enters water to save Kit. And it reinforces this image of someone against the odds going out and doing this very, very brave thing. And then people get in that mindset, oh, I could be the hero here. And actually, they're not using rational decision-making about if I run downstream a little bit, there's a tree across the river, I can get there, I can float it. But heroism is often when you put everything, you throw every good decision out the winter and you enter the situation blindly. And actually, law enforcement, fire, all those people, they've done a lot of training around command presence and around making fast assessment. They have all these tools at their disposal. And standard people like me don't without really high-level training. So people get in trouble really quickly. I would, I'm curious um, about your perspective here. So I, I've done triathlons. I've done long-distance swimming. And I think I learned sort of as an adult to get into long-distance swimming. And one of the things that gets hammered into you is, you know, you've got to learn to relax in the water. The more relaxed you are, the easier it'll be, the faster you can actually go. Uh, I have to imagine the the rescuers that are going into the water for a, a rescue where, you know, there's a live victim that they're going at going in for, I would assume that the same thing, they have to learn to sort of stay somewhat relaxed and focused in an environment that must be so insanely difficult to do, stay relaxed in. Well, you look at surf rescue as a concept and look at the control, the mind control that practitioners of high-level surf rescue have, it's all breath control. It's all about being submerged for long periods of time and losing your way underwater and just knowing you've got enough oxygen to get to the top. In what I do within Swift Water, it is very rare we enter the water to rescue somebody. Because we're arriving late. We're arriving to a recovery. So I think two-thirds of the missions I've been sent out on are, are body recovery. And I can only recall a handful of times I've swum to somebody, and that's because they're on top of a car, they're on an island, they found some way to get out on a rock. They have some stability there. But to enter the water at flood level with any hope of getting somebody is the chances of that happening are so small. It's not the ocean where you have prediction with high surf or a rip where you know where they're going. And you might have a flotation. You've got a railroad in the water which is ripping by you at 25 30 miles an hour and you have a moment to respond beyond that you're not going to do anything so safety and that starts with being on the bank and finding ways to have spans or finding ways to intercept above the water and you're dropping something down to someone and that's the big difference between vertical and it being in the water vertical you're kind of never struggling for breath. You have time to pace. You can figure out where your drop's going to be or where you're ascending to. In water, it is a dynamic, ever-evolving landscape. And people, again, media has this idea that with uh, CSI Miami or what have you, you have all this technology and all this sort of ability, and you don't. You have a rope, a PFD, and some fins. 
Wow. And then your your role is a lot of the coordination after the event happens and dealing with interacting with the families and other law enforcement agencies. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that's handled? So as a family liaison officer, you're the you're the instant commander's representative to the families. So you're you are channeling information from the IC, the instant commander, to the family directly and then bringing the families questions back to the IC. So if you've got a mission, which is a search, you're right embedded with that family on a really tight schedule. You might be there with them or on the phone or meeting them at the entrance. And you're helping to chaperone them through this complicated search and rescue process. And then in the event there's a fatality, you're there quite often as the news is broken that the person is dead. And then you're dealing with that emotional aftermath, not as a therapist or a counselor, but as a kind administrator. And what you're doing is you're helping to get them, give them the information. You're giving them some level of security, a foundation, because their world's been blown up. Things have sort of gone like they never predicted. Giving them something to rely on, allowing them simple decisions, and then putting them to a position where they transition out of your care and then maybe move with the body of their loved one to another jurisdiction or they go home and you terminate your role at that. Do you often... yeah, and it's super intense. Do you often um, also interact with the the search and rescue team members after the event to sort of give them the the readout on how the family is doing? I would assume there would be some some curiosity or some interest from some team members that would want to know how the family's feeling. Often, often team members want to know, uh, you know, how did it go down? What's the sort of plan? But my job is to insulate the team from the emotional impact of that and also to insulate the families from kind of some of the realities of working search and rescue where humor is a little bit off because you're dealing with a traumatic uh, incident. You're actually going to the next incident. You might be coming in on this one and you leave to go to another one. It looks uncaring because you haven't closed Mm -hmm. out their loved one's demise. So... Yeah, I'll report stuff out. And we do a lot of work along the stress continuum, which is a lot of the work that Laura McGladry did with the Responder Alliance, which looks at the impact of trauma, particularly on rescuers, and how to have them process it. I'm not a counselor, but how to do peer processing to guard against long-term injury. The idea that PTSI, post-traumatic stress injuries, are treatable, if you facilitate the well, if people have connection, if people are following healthy practice, that's a big part of what I try to do within the team is have people recognize the trauma of the role, come to terms with it in, 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 in their own sort of mind so they can function at a high level and so that the lasting effects are reduced. Because you're not a volunteer organization, um, is there a different, I would assume that is a slightly different intake um, for new members in, in a screening process than most of the volunteer organizations where I know in New Hampshire, a lot of times it's it's sort of a volunteer hike to test out somebody's skills. And then over time, they'll, they'll join different missions and then 
once they get a certain level of experience, you know, they're sort of a standing member of the team. But I would assume in your your search and rescue organization, it's a little bit different with new members. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the 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 process for new new people joining? So the Park Service act- actively recruits about sixteen what are called search and rescue search and rescue sighters, people who live in Tuolumne Meadows or down in the valley, and they normally come with very high end climbing skills with a really good resume of stiff ascents on granite, so they understand the vertical world, and they may have this adjunct of wilderness medical skills or really good expedition skills. But they're recruited to be the core team that run from about April through to October, the end of October, which is the main climbing month in Yosemite. And then you have people like me who are community members who have time in the park, who've got good connections within the rangers, the law enforcement rangers. And then we come in to hopefully fill out certain, certain skills, particularly at busy times. And then the rangers, which are law enforcement, a multi multidisciplinary uh, group that come in with helicopter skills or with uh, high angle rescue skills or water skills, and they break up into their individual teams that help to supplement the overall search and rescue operation. But it's a competitive market. It's probably, there's maybe 25, 30 people who are the core team, another 15 that are community. And then they pull in for mutual aid groups, other federal agencies and locals to supplement when we have the 120 person search operations. Wow. And the, um, I guess just in general with Yosemite, I'm curious, um, in New Hampshire, I've personally just sort of collected media reported search and rescue events over the years. And I've looked for patterns to say like, okay, well, what's the most common type of incidents? What can we do to mitigate those? And I think that the biggest thing in New Hampshire that we see is lower leg injuries, carry out type of situation. So I always tell people like, hey, bring a splint. Yeah. Try to teach yourself how to use a, a field splint. You might be able to self-rescue with a splint. And, you know, I, that sort of is like the, the the one obvious thing in New Hampshire. I'm wondering, are you aware of any sort of data analytics that are done to look at the volume of rescues, the type of rescues, and whether that's ever resulted in, in any educational um, initiatives to say like, oh, wow, we're seeing a lot of people that are um, – you know, having rope accidents because they're, you know, I don't know much about climbing, but like a certain mistake that you see in, in climbing, then just sort of trying to educate climbers in certain areas or not. So Yosemite and Grand Canyon have done a lot of really good work on analyzing their core log. I think Grand Canyon has the highest t- uh, call out rate and predominantly it's dehydration yeah. and falls. And they have a really good uh, piece of, that talks about hydrate or die basically it's like the idea that don't hyponatremia is a bad thing don't get overhydrated but have plenty of water don't heat don't hike in the hottest part of the day and stay away from the edge they have a really good program in yosemite we have a, a similar program it's a little differently uh administered but it's lower leg injuries slips and falls is the commonest incident you respond to and then it's it's people just getting unlucky and exceeding their ability. It's getting close to an edge. It's trying something new for the first time and paying a terrible price. 
and there's there's definitely books out there. Death in Grand Ca- in the Grand Canyon, Death in Yosemite, are both really document all the deaths that have happened. I, my one criticism of that book is that, again, it's respect is you're talking about people's families and and family members, and I think sometimes there's a there's a leap to be it almost became comedic about the manner in which somebody has died. And when you've been as close as I have to the pain of that family's loss, you realize that's, that's misplaced. We don't, we need to be less judging and more loving. It's the lessons can still be learned. American Alpine Institute does a fantastic accidents in North America that mountaineering analysis. There's cold analysis it doesn't belittle people. It values people. It talks about the bare bones of the incident, provides a lesson. Whereas the news is sensationalism and the tragedy of this thing. And it, you cloud the lesson because we have to have drama. We have to have the Instagram piece of it. And the lesson is lost at that point. It's ed- it becomes entertainment. Yeah, and you're there basically dealing with the, you know, the communication with the family, and then also seeing, you know, the impact that that can have on the search and rescue team members after events happen. And I know that we've had some some rough ones here in New Hampshire. I can only imagine in Yosemite, you're probably the volumes even higher, and um, you know, it must be a difficult sort of mental game to play uh, to get through when you when you do see, you know, multiple fatalities or something that. You know, and they do seem to cluster a lot here in New Hampshire. So, um, I can imagine it can be difficult. It's a small, it's a, it's a small community as well. Like if you if you work in the outdoors, if your recreational theater is the outdoors, you're not that far removed quite often from people who have either responded to the accident or are the accident. And and there's a, again there's a trauma element within that. And you, I've noticed as I've got older that the trajectory of people I know who who have had accidents and died has it hasn't slowed. It's got faster because you've got people playing on the edge, and the odds. Yeah, and I found that myself too. I think when it's, they do it's the more experience you get, the more comfortable you are with taking risk, and you know it only takes one misstep to. To turn bad, so that makes sense. Um, it's the moderate climb. The moderate climbs are the ones that kill people or descent when you're tired. So you're over. You're, you're not safe enough in that five eight five five ten range because you've always done it, and you have a you didn't put a piece of gear, and a rock comes off, and you fall a long way. Or you're tired at the end of the day and you make a basic mistake on that ledge. And it, that's the tragedy of a lot of this is when you actually look at it, it's, again, it's that cascade effect. Yeah. Very, very small events that alone don't mean anything add up to a tragic outcome. So somebody, arriving, somebody arriving late and deciding to do a half dome and they're tired and they're dehydrated at the start of the climb and they take one bottle of water and they get exhausted and then they do the cables and they get to the top of the mountain, they get the summit and then they die in descent because they're dehydrated. They've lost their balance. They are maxing out their heart. That's, that's not, 
that's not a unbelievable profile of an accident. And it was avoidable by someone saying, I'm not in the right frame of mind to do that ascent. Yeah, and I promise you, Moose, next week when I go up to Half Dome, I am going to be well hydrated, I'm going to have my water, I'm going to have my gloves, and I'm going to make sure there's absolutely no chance of rain. I'm, I'm playing it safe. You go early, you're, you're acclimatizing, you're not going to be at 3,800 feet in Mono Meadow, you're going to be closer to four and a half, five. Yep. You're going to have, you're going to be rested, you're going to be hydrated. You're going to carry out some of the piles of gloves that are up there, hopefully, that yeah, we need to get out of the backcountry. <laughs> and you've set yourself up for success. And that, that's the piece that when you're out on the trail and you look at somebody struggling, we take the time to stop and ask what's going on and encourage them to make a good decision. And that's that's another part of this. Yeah, and I'm always like nervous to do that sometimes because I don't want to be like the nosy person or get somebody upset because you know I'm, I'm spotting something. Matter of fact, I had an incident that, that last weekend where I saw somebody that was pushing their dog way too hard, and the dog was clearly not going to make it. And I just sort of I put my head down. And I said I'm going to mind my business because I don't know this person, and they're they're yelling at the dog, and there's multiple people around, and I just sort of didn't want to. I don't know. I just felt like I, I didn't want to cause a scene or embarrass him. But What a great opening to say, I want to be respectful of you and I don't want to create a scene. Yeah. I, is there anything I can help with right now? I've got, got some extra water here if you need some more water for the dog. And if the person comes back and they're just maxed out and it, it, they just sort of project onto you and they stop abusing the dog, that might be the start. We're afraid to intervene. But actually, safety starts in intervention. And I, I have to admit, I don't go to places in Yosemite because I feel I would be intervening the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I because bet. you see these behaviors. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sort of saying I've got all the answers, but there are times where I've said, hey, I've been up here and I've, I've picked up people who've, who've fallen off this edge. Or I've said I've lost, you know, friends here. And that's that's a good thing, I think, ultimately, to share that personal story. Yeah, no, that's good advice <laughs> for sure. Next time I will, I'll, I'll try to engage a little conversation. I, it was a very crowded area, and I was, like, kind of done with the crowds, too. I was like, oh, I just want to get down from here. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so I have to ask Moose, what's the origin of the name? How'd you get the name Moose? Was it, Were you, were you um, given that name when you were young or what? I was a very poor summer camp employee who uh, got a job as a group leader and potentially started a bit of a riot at the end of the week with the campus, potentially. Okay. Right? That's all I'm willing to say. Right. And I was, I was told by the management that perhaps the job, that job wasn't my best uh, use of my skills, and I was banished to the local pub that had a big deer head on the wall okay. that called the moose. That's great. And I would, and you would go into the pub and say hello to the moose, and then you would sit underneath the moose head and sort of and, and talk. And I was sitting in there very morosely, having been fired as a group leader, uh, and one thing led to another, and then I became moose. I was the <laughs> moose from the from the red line in Sedba, and. The alliteration of Moose Mutter was very good. And then working with young people, if you say your name's Moose, they're going to remember it. 
And if they have that name contact, they're probably going to ask you a question. And it breaks that back. It makes you accessible and it's just stuck. So, yeah, I got it when I was in my sort of maybe 20 and it's been my name ever since. Yeah, it's, it's very memorable. Um, this is probably going to upset some of your friends if you have a lot of friends that are at different national parks across the U.S. But could you give some advice or sort of your top three of people that are thinking about, like, I want to go to a national park and visit? Um, what would be your your picks if you wanted to give like two or three options for people to start with? I think if you want to have your socks blown off at the beauty of the history of America, Mesa Verde National Park. It's the one park I've been to where looking at Native American cultural elements, the built the cliff dwellings, where, where strangers have turned to each other at viewpoints and just started conversations because it's absolutely mind-blowing the idea of this culture, this rich, rich culture having this amazing effect on the landscape and it just promotes dialogue. So Macy Verde is the place to interact. I think affordable adventures, it's really hard to beat a lot of the Northeast uh, or Smokies National Park is another great one. It's somewhere that's easy to get to. You can do great hiking out in the sort of apple, bottom part of the Appalachians. And then if you're going really exotic, Wrangell St. Elias. It's uh, one of the largest parks in, in Alaska. And I paddled from McCarthy down to Cordova, flew right from the interior, all the way down the salmon, this series of salmon rivers to the mouth where it spits out into the Pacific. And that is just this amazingly intact uh, ecosystem with we caught, I don't know, 12 salmon in 30 minutes. Uh, we had bears wandering right up through the camp. Yeah, we were, we were one boat, two people, icebergs turning over, and that's kind of a lifetime trip. But the beauty of the American National Park system and public lands is there are hundreds of places that people can recreate, and unless you participate and you protect them and talk to your congressmen and your senators, they will be gone. And much as you see up in the whites, the idea of if it's in your backyard, don't take it for granted. You've got to advocate. You've got to have activism. You've got to fight for these places, not just to remain, but to get bigger and have better protection. And so even if you've never been to the desert southwest or you've never been out in the Aleutians, by modeling what you do at home, you fight for all those places everywhere else. And if a and the, the the reason I stayed in America was somebody said to me, you know, you can go all over the world and you can fight for stuff, but America is this sort of place where if, if you get it right in America, there's a chance for it really to ripple out for good. And the national parks are a great thing, and protecting public lands are a great thing. And that's what other nations need to see America as a torchbearer for that. As much as for democracy, it has to be a torchbearer for the conservation of wild spaces. When you look at, you know, when you have a wider view than probably me and Stomp, because we're, we're just up here in the whites, but when you look at sort of, um, you know, good path, bad path, when it comes to sort of people's respect for the outdoors, leave no trace, 
um, the political aspect? Are, are, do you feel like we're on a good path, bad path, or, or to be determined? Oh, I have optimism because if you're asking young people to participate in in having a better world, you have to have optimism. I think we. I think the single biggest challenge for the outdoor community is to be truly inclusive and to celebrate and embrace diversity. And that's that's to look at who we are right now, older white man talking about the outdoors. We need to make sure we're welcoming in people from other cultural groups and fully supporting them in their exploration of, of their nation's wild spaces. So if there's one thing I would say is if you've got old that, that rain jacket that you got a new one, the other one's still pretty good, donate it to programs that are helping to really bring culturally diverse groups out into the outdoors so that the economic barrier of gear doesn't stop them from enjoying it. Yeah, and it's such a tricky thing because it, it does involve a lot of research. Like I always tell people like the, you know, the, the, we have these lists out here. You know, the 4,000-footer list, the 52-with-a-view list, all these different lists. And I don't know how much of a list culture it is out in the West, but to me, I always tell people, you know, the hardest part of doing these lists is finding, figuring out how to find the trailhead and just making your way through. So I can only imagine, like, I'm a, I'm a, a data nerd, a researcher, and I, I look at things. I can only imagine somebody that's not involved in hiking you know, that has never been up in New Hampshire or been to a national park, like the logistics of figuring out where to go, what to do, it, it's got to be very daunting. So um, we're trying to do our part locally to educate people over the podcast. But you're right, there's certainly the volume of people has increased in the, at least in the White Mountains, as far as we know. Uh, but, you know, I wonder, it could probably be a lot bigger and a, a lot bigger tent of people that come in. There's a great organization called Big City Mountaineers that takes sort of CEO types who actively mentor people from underserved, young people from underserved communities. That's a great group to go with. Or Boys and Girls Club. You've got to have Boys and Girls Clubs up there. If you just did a drive that gave them outdoor gear and then stand back, REI or other outdoor outfitters can help out. We don't have to do the lift ourselves. We're part of community. And I think the work that you do in advocating for your space is really important. You're, you're incredibly good advocates for your space. And that, that doesn't diminish your role because you're local. You're an active voice in that uh, getting knowledge out. And that's, that's as important. That's part of this puzzle. It's cracking, I think, really good instruction and really good mentorship that continues to be the challenge to, to reach underserved yeah. groups. Hey, Moose, have you been to New Hampshire? Have you hiked in the Whites? No, but I know a lot about it because it's just nasty, horrible weather. So when I, I worked in North Carolina for 10 years, and we have Mount Mitchell, which we're, pr we're very proud of the highest yeah. point east of the Mississippi. It's not Mount Washington. Um, and you would hear stories about the Whites. You would hear this idea of, I'll get ready. And it reminds me a lot of Scottish ice and Scottish sort of culture where it comes in fast, hard, and cold. And you managed to successfully put me off. I, I did actually go out one okay. summer and really enjoy the coast of Maine. It's, it's beautiful in the summer. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't endured the, the whites in the winter yet. 
Yeah, yeah. We got to get you out here because we always need to get West Coast people out here because we always get told like, oh, you got these little tiny foothills and these small mountains. But then when they no. get up there, they, they go, you know, we don't have switchbacks. The trail builders did not know about switchbacks. They they even tried to bring them in and we they were told, <laughs> no, we go up on the ridge line straight up. So that's what people say like, okay, well, they're small, but they're they're mighty. So. Yeah, and it, I think there's that cultural dismissal quite often when it's in your backyard, when you've got this passion about your own space, that, well, it's not the West. You're right, it's not the West, but it's, it's, it still has value. I think, I want to say like a third of the population of um, the United States and uh, North America is kind of in that mm-hmm. top corner. They're all within four and a half hours of Arcata, the coastline. And when you realize that scale of people, so you have that northern Quebec, you've got all this potential, but Maine is a gem. It, it has this this thing. It has this 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 wonderful, wonderful yeah, thing. Yeah, well, someday we'll hopefully get you out there. Um, hey, another question I have for you is in Yosemite. Like, obviously, everybody knows Alex Harnold, and, and you know, there's a, probably a bunch of other celebrity hikers that I have no, or, or climbers that I have no clue about. But what is the, like, the celebrity culture out there in Yosemite? What's the the um, the climbing culture like out there? Are those people as quirky and interesting as they're made out to be in all the documentaries? Well, I'm a little repelled by it, okay. <laughs> and i I'm not I'm not I'm not a celebrity um, somebody who uh, try to be someone not stirred by celebrity. What people like Alex Honnold do, or the Huber Brothers ways back, or um, Tommy Caldwell, they they are incredible athletic uh, um, achievements. They are they are incredible things, and what they do through their podcasts or outreach are really really important. The, the climbing subculture in Yosemite is a very powerful thing, and it is both wonderful and toxic at the same time. Um, and I, I th- again, I think it's one of the things about Yosemite is, is it used to be if you want to make a name for yourself in climbing, you perform in Yosemite. And now not as much. They're still the test pieces, um, but it's we have a bigger world out there. Um, and so the culture's changed a little bit. And there's a lot of people who would like to be that well-known, who, who spray. The spray zone is very active. Um, but they aren't the only user. There's a, there's a whole slew of people who just like to sit in the Merced River, sip a beer, and look at the view. And they should be valued on the same level. Climbers don't have a special place. It's, it's everybody's park. It's everybody's national park. You know, that's my plan is to sneak a couple of beers on my in into my backpack and enjoy them at some point when I get out there. So so Moose, if I get in trouble and, and I need a rescue, can I drop your name next week? You can, but they'll probably be like, It doesn't make any difference. We'll decide what we're gonna do based on your injury. <laughs> and I, I do like yeah, the fact yeah. that a few years ago, I think it was maybe one of the American Express had a black card that said they will globally rescue you anywhere in the world. And there was a spate of phone calls that came in from their dispatch center that said, we're requesting a helicopter rescue off of Half Dome. And you're like, what? And it's like, yeah, we have a card member who's interested in getting, you know, down from Half Dome. And you're like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. You go up there when there's a real medical emergency, but, you know, helicopters are 
basically designed to self-destruct and pilots are trained to stop them from doing so. So unless you have to put it in the air, you don't do it. Yeah, yeah, money can't always buy everything. So, um, well, this has been fascinating, Moose. I think that uh, you are a super interesting guy and inspiring guy. I'll make sure that I link your website to our show notes. Anything you want to? Uh, anything you want to plug? Any books or any appearances? Anything like that? I've got a couple of books out. I got one book that looks at the family liaison uh, role called when accidents happen and it's, it's essentially a textbook to help guide search and rescue people and lay people into helping people when there's been an accident what can you do to help and then i have another book that's a reflective piece called searching which looks at the long-term effects of dealing with fatality in the uh, search and rescue world and it, it was just a more therapeutic write that i did and both of those available uh on amazon um, if you just put Moose Mutlow in, you're, I'll come up. And then the other thing I want to do is to encourage people out there, if you're looking at donating at the end of the year, think about donating to your local search and rescue. Don't go to the high-end ones like Yosemite. We're fine. Look at your local department who are like trying to figure out how to get new winter boots and, and send them 25 bucks and help them out. Excellent. Yep. We will. Uh, so we will put a couple of links into the local search and rescue teams for donation in your honor for the show notes, and we we you know we push that occasionally here um, as well. So stop. Any any questions for Moose before we let him uh, get back to living his life? Yeah, Moose. Do you have um, some tips or pointers for our listeners who are mostly hikers uh, regarding uh, safe passage over swollen rivers or brooks if they're hiking? And secondarily, uh, we've had a spat of oceanic rip current uh, rescues, like literally, like I believe it was 30 over the uh, Labor Day weekend and just one death today. So do you have any uh, insight as to those two situations? Well, I think intuition is a really good thing. So when that little voice goes, oh, that looks a bit hard, listen to it and maybe change your route. There's a long history in Yosemite Unfortunately, people being focused on their car to get to the exit point and making a creek crossing and it taking their lives. So for me, for creek crossings is if it's above your knee, probably look for another crossing point and think about backtracking. And if you're finding yourself double guessing whether you should be doing it, absolutely don't do it. And then in terms of the rip, I think... The surf rescue people would say, if you're getting a rip current, don't fight it, relax, control your breathing. You're in the water. That's the single thing that's compromised, first of all. You aspirate water and you struggle, and then you're in deficit. Uh, find a way to regulate your breathing. Find a way to swim at the surface. And then I think the direction for rip is basically make that sideways tack where you're coming across it as you're getting washed out. Right. But a lot of it is is about listening to the voice. It's it, we had an incident in Yosemite where a, a man, oh, yeah, and I can time. tell this because it has a good outcome. Have we got time for another story? So we have a, a man. He's out walking foreign national. He's having a really good time. He comes down to a spillway, so water coming over the top of a, a concrete spillway, and there's three. 24 inch culverts below it 
that have fallen. He doesn't want to get his boots wet, so he goes upstream and attempts to cross where it's shallow, and he falls in, he gets washed down. It's not a frequently traveled trail. He's only about 150 meters away from another trail with a lot of people on it. And he then get washed into the culvert, but he manages to catch his elbows and his arms. So only his lower body and his chest and his legs are in the culvert. And he holds on there for maybe 15 minutes. We're not sure. And then he gets washed through the culvert. Fortunately, there was no debris in it and no sort of degraded metal. He gets washed out. He ends up on a rock. We, we have a successful pickoff. And during the pickoff, he also loses his pants. And then during the swim, he loses his boots. So if he had walked through nine inches of water on a c flat concrete, he wouldn't have had that adventure. But he chose a comfort piece, which is, I don't want to get my boots wet, and he almost paid for it with his life. And I think that that's a really good story because it says, hey, sometimes that first option, you're inconvenienced, but you're not threatened by it. You know, it's not going to take your life. And you look for the easy way out. You go upstream, you start climbing around on a tree or next to a big unstable rock on the edge of the river. And that's where the accident happens. Excellent. Thank you. That's all I had, Mike. Well, Moose, like I said, we will make sure that we plug your uh, your books here, and we appreciate you coming on and joining us. This has been fascinating, and I wish I maybe I, I, unfortunately my timing didn't work out. I'd love to meet you if I'm out there, but maybe next time I'll take I'll take Stomp out with me, and uh, you can you can take us out and show us around next year. Yeah, if you're out here, definitely give us a heads up. I'm in and around a lot. I have a training cycle in the spring, April, May. If you guys came out. I would be happy to see, sort of have you ghost in on, on those trainings and see what we do. And also feel free to sort of throw my name out as a resource for people. Um, I think I'm always interested in, in I do lots, little bits of training for free for people online. I'll sit in with search and rescue groups and talk through how to maybe better serve people out on the trail. So if you see a place where you think I might be able to help, then feel free to throw my name out there. And I do a lot of pro bono work with that. Great. Awesome. Well, we'll let you go. And uh, thanks again. So. Thanks, fellas. Thank you so much. And good luck with the rest of the show. All right, Stomp. So we are back. What do you think of Moose? Moose is a very cool dude. Uh, just so insightful and thoughtful. And uh, his insight... Just all things uh, swift water in particular. Uh, I was glad he talked a little bit about um, rip currents and things like that because it's been in the news quite a bit. But uh, yeah, so thankful that he came on. Yeah. Yeah, no, he had a great perspective on uh, sort of opening up the outdoors and trying to get more people educated on safety. And, you know, he's definitely got a ton of experience. He's probably forgotten more than, than I'll ever know about these things, but he was he was fascinating. Yeah, what, what's your take on uh, his disdain, or not so much disdain, but the celebrity culture versus just, you know, the regular folks that are out there enjoying themselves? I thought that was great. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I mean, it, it probably is... Um, you know, it probably gets old. And I think that, you know, these things ebb and flow. I do think that, you know, one thing I didn't bring up to him is that I do wonder, like, with celebrity culture, like, celebrity, I always say this, like, you know, you get a couple of celebrities that are involved in, like, 
I always joke around. I say like it's only going to take one Kardashian to discover like the Appalachian Trail, and it's going to ruin it for everybody. But <laughs> one Kardashian gets on the Appalachian Trail may inspire people that wouldn't otherwise ever consider doing like something like that. So who knows? Yeah, yeah, it'll get them off the couch and away from the TV watching their show. It's yeah, great. Yeah. Do you watch the Kardashians stop, by the way? Uh, but it's, it's like second here in smoke. Let's just say that. Really? Yeah. All yeah. right. I was curious if you were going to pick one of them, who would be the most likely to hike the Appalachian Trail? <laughs> At this point, um, I think probably Kim. She seems to be the most motivated and go-getter-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say Kim, too. Maybe Courtney, but uh, <laughs> definitely not Chloe or the younger two. So anyway... <laughs> Um, so we apologize for the Kardashian talk here, but all good stuff. So, um, want to get into the recent search and rescue news. We've had a bunch of stuff going on here in New Hampshire, so we're not going to do anything national at this point. Yeah, there's just too much to go over. So yeah, let's check it out. Self situated here. All right. So, this first one here, Thursday, August 24th, uh, shortly before 11 30, New Hampshire Fishing Game was notified of a hiker that was injured near the summit of Bay- Bailey Mountain. This is B A Y L E. So, Stomp, I looked this up. This looks like it is a smaller peak slightly north of um, the Ossipee Range. So it's almost directly north of Mount Shaw. So it's gotcha. in Ossipee, New Hampshire. So 51-year-old hiker um, out of New Jersey was hiking with her husband and daughter when she injured her ankle while descending from the summit. Hiker was unable to bear weight on her injury, so the group she was with placed a call for help. And uh, conservation officers and then members of the various fire departments in the area, Ossipee, West Ossipee, Madison, Tamworth, as well as Lakes Region Search and Rescue responded. And they they identified that the victim was about a mile from the trailhead. So she was placed in a litter, treated, and then carried out. And they said sections of this trail were very steep and required a litter to be rope lowered. So a bit of a project here. Eventually, they got her to a waiting ATV, which transported her to the hospital so i'm not familiar with this with this area so i'm definitely interested in checking it out but Mm -hmm. it sounds like she is okay so from a timeline perspective the call came in around 11 30 and she ended up getting back at the ambulance around four o'clock so about a four and a half hour rescue there are you familiar with this bailey mountain i'm not um yeah not at all unfortunately okay uh so this next one here happened on august 25th 11 p.m so this is a nighttime rescue uh fishing game was notified of a lost hiker in the vicinity of kearsarge north so we've talked about kearsarge north a bunch so this Mm -hmm. is off of hurricane mountain road in north conway it's a great it's 
you know, three miles up, three miles down. So it's about a six mile hike with a with a fire tower on top. So, thirty eight year old um, hiker from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, hiked to the summit of Mount Kearsarge North. He was poking around the summit and then spent some time off trail. <laughs> After some time, he realized that he was lost and he was unable to self rescue due to the cold, wet weather, and he had no light. So he called nine one one for assistance at approximately eleven p.m. Mm. So. I guess not my question would be what was going on between like say eight o'clock and eleven, but he was probably poking around the summit there. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so it that's a tough one because it's it can happen, and it's three mile. It's a three mile hike to get up there. So, uh, fishing game responded to the call. They were able to locate him around two forty in the morning. So, unfortunately, you know, a lot of times people are like camping out at that fire tower there. But I don't know right. if he even made it to the summit. But they located yeah. him. They provided warm clothing, food, water, and a headlamp, and then they were able to hike back down. So they got out around five fifteen. Yeah, that's a long one. So yeah, it says he explored the summit and then spent some time off trail. So I'm not sure quite what that means, but yeah, yeah. You mm. know, as many times as I've been up there, I don't think I've ever like explored the summit. I've I've pretty much gone to the fire tower, and I've been like, oh, look at this cool view, and then headed down. Mm. It's, yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know what there is to explore. <laughs> it seems like it's mostly ledge, just flattish ledge. Yeah, it's ledge, and um, there's a there's a there's a privy up there. I know that I've never been to it. Oh but, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, there's like a privy up there, um, but I never needed to use it, so mm. I've just gone to the fire tower. Yeah. Uh, don't explore North KSR Summit. <laughs> Not a good idea. Um, Monday, August twenty eighth, at approximately eight a.m. New Hampshire State Police dispatch advised fishing game of a hiker that had suffered a knee injury on the Appalachian Trail and was unable to walk. This is a 57-year-old female hiker out of Maryland. Um, she had apparently missed a step on a bog bridge the day prior and injured her knee. She is a um, through hiker. So she was with her hiking partner. They were able to make it to Gentian Pond Hut. All right, so then that makes sense. So. Mm-hmm. That area, I don't know if they were going north or south, but that area is is rife with bog bridges and mud pits and things like that. So, okay. and I'm sure it's been pretty wet. So, it's Gentian Pond. That's north of Rattle River, heading up towards like um, Mount Success in that area there. So, gotcha. Okay. Um, around 11:30 a.m., members from Androscoggin Search and Rescue, along with conservation officers, assembled at the Austin Brook Trailhead. They were able to utilize ATVs to get within about a mile, and then they put her in a litter and carried her back to the location. So that's not an awful place to get um, get rescued because I think the road is pretty close for Gentian Pond. So um, all good. I guess she was transported to Gorham Ambulance via Gorham Ambulance to Androscoggin Valley Hospital in Berlin. Mm-hmm. So. Both hikers were well equipped and had the necessary gear, so they were certainly um, ready to go. So they were coming from Crawford Notch, so they were heading northbound. So that's a rough area. Okay, gotcha. All right. Uh, this next one here, Stomp, this was in Maine on Mount Katahdin. Rescue team spent 21 hours working to rescue six people who got into trouble on Mount Katahdin. 
Uh, this happened last Saturday. They were climbing up the Dudley Trail. So the Dudley Trail is a, a trail that had been closed for a long, long time. Pretty steep trail on the other side coming up from Roaring Brook. I've never been on that side. I've only come up from A-Ball, but um, Dudley was closed up until I think about a year or two ago, if I don't, if I recall correctly. Yep. Um, so search and rescue members climbed the Helen Taylor Trail in the dark to converge on the knife's edge which is where these hikers were. So two rangers hiked alone so that one could summit quickly with a a lighter pack. So uh, North Search and Rescue said the situation was stabilized, but winds were hitting around 30 miles an hour and temperatures were dropped. So they've they've decided to shelter in place and hunker down on the mountain until daylight. So by 8 a.m., a Maine National Guard helicopter arrived and within minutes started to help to evacuate people while others started hiking down the Helon Taylor Trail or Helen Trailer tr- Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, rescuers said they spent the next 11 hours lifting, carrying, and guiding the hikers down the mountain. Another rescue team member raced up the mountain with several bottles of water and supplies. Um, so they were all arrived at Roaring Brook eventually where the hikers were met by friends and family. So they said wow. 21 hours total was spent on this call. So that's a long day. Yeah. No kidding. That's incredible. Interesting side yeah. point though. So one ranger with a lighter pack went ahead and there was a second one behind with the heavier pack. That's a really clever strategy. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've only been to Katahdin once, but my experience there is that the rangers are, yeah, I mean, the day I went, the rangers hiked. So there was a, mm-hmm. we, saw a, we saw a ranger leave before we went up, and then we saw him up by the summit, and he was coming down. So I think it's pretty standard for them to go a couple times a week or maybe every day. I don't know if they what their protocol is, but those guys are... They're the real deal, and they can get up pretty quick. Sure, but uh, but we're assuming that the, the second one that was behind had a heavier pack with all the extra gear that might have been necessary yeah. for a longer uh, mission. Pretty yep, cool. He had the stomp pack. <laughs> yeah, right, probably. <laughs> yeah, all right. Huh. Uh, this next one is a, a rescue on Mount Guillot. So this happened on August 31st. Uh, just before 9 p.m., fishing game were notified by AMC of an injured hiker near the Guillaume shelter. Hiker had suffered a leg injury that was not allowing her to bear weight. She had to be carried two-tenths of a mile, a mile to the tent site where she spent the night. Mm. In the early morning hours of September 1st, it was determined the condition of the hiker had not approved. I mean, that's that's as far out as you can get, basically. Oh, yeah, right. for sure. Unless you're in like Owl's Head or something like that. So seven and a half mile carry out. Mm-hmm. Fishing game, they made the call to New Hampshire Army National Guard to check on the feasibility of an aerial rescue uh, in order to get her medical care. So the Army National Guard was able to get a flight crew together and they departed Concord at 10 a.m. They arrived by 11.15 um, or by 11.15, the injured hiker was at Littleton Regional Healthcare being evaluated. So this aerial rescue saved what would have been a, like a 16 to 20-hour rescue for uh, which the search and rescue community was very grateful. So 42-year-old hiker from Brooklyn, New York, 
Um, she was on her first day of a three-day hike around the Pemi Loop. Mm-hmm. So nearing the first day's destination, she slipped on a wet rock ca- causing a leg injury. A companion and a good Samaritan hiker carried her to the Guillaume Shelter Overflow tent site. All right, that, that makes sense. So she stayed up on the trail closer to West Bond instead of going down because that, that hike into Guillaume is a bit of a... It's brutal. That's... A, yeah, 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 it's like it, it, it's like oh damn, do I have to go down this this low? So uh, <laughs> shout out to the AMC caretaker at the shelter who provided aid and was able to radio for assistance from the remote location. So um, the injured hiker and her companion were well prepared for the multi day hike. So um, fishing game just reminds people steady rain has fallen over the month of June, July, and August, and it's slippery. So um, good traction, good footwear is is essential. Yes. All right, Stomp. Let me see if there's any other ones that we should do right now or if we should just hold off. Monadnock's interesting. Monadnock. So a pair of hikers rescued on the Dublin Trail on Monadnock just before 8.30 p.m. on September 3rd. Fishing game conservation officers were notified of a pair of hikers in need of assistance on the Dublin Trail. Uh, these hikers had been overtaken by darkness and did not have light. So 55-year-old from Charlton, Mass., yep. and a um, 81-year-old from Dummerston, Vermont, mm. were having difficulty walking. So the 81-year-old was having some issues with muscle fatigue. So conservation officers assisted the hikers back to Old Troy Road, reaching the trailhead around 10.10. So easy-peasy for the... Um, for the fishing game officers over by Monadnock. <laughs> okay. I suppose. So there's a few more here, but for the sake of time, we'll save those for next week. And uh, I think that's the episode, Stomp. Any any closing thoughts? No, it's good to be back and uh, getting ready for the fall. It's a great time of the year. So hope you enjoyed the show. Yep. And Stomp and his million dollar studio will see you next week in episode 121. And I'll be here with my Best Buy microphone. Later. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fishing Games. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are 
are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 